And so I actually bought myself a selfie stick. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 289 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jason Sweat. Hello. Jerome Hardaway. What's up, everybody? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Jay McGavran. Hi, folks. You want to introduce yourself real quick, Jay? Yeah, sure. So I'm Jay McGavran. I'm the author of Headfirst Ruby, uh, published in 2015 by O'Reilly. Uh, late 2015, and I'm also Treehouse's new Ruby teacher, so I do video tutorials. Woohoo! I think it's pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> I recently had lunch with another Treehouse uh, teacher. He teaches JavaScript. I'm trying to remember. I've got a whole bunch of names going through my head, and I don't remember which one I need to pick out. <laughs> Andrew yeah. Chalkley, maybe? Well, we've got James, a whole lot of folks. James um... Churchill? Yeah, James Churchill, that's who it was. Oh, nice, cool. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Yeah. Anyway. All the t- all the teachers are cool folks, but... <laughs> uh, isn't that a, a job requirement, right? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I made it in somehow, too. <laughs> nice. So, um, I'm curious. It, it seems like uh, Head First Ruby and uh, Treehouse kind of have a little bit... Like, like you get to teach people. You get to teach people some of the basics of Ruby. Um, did you write the book and join Treehouse for some of the same reasons? Or yes, you... very much so. Okay. Do you want to just kind of explain um, what your approach is then to helping people pick up Ruby? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, my approach in the book, at least, is very much the general head-first approach, which is uh, try to explain everything as clearly as possible, break it down as much as you possibly can, Because I find, especially a lot of the reference programming books, they just throw so much at you at one time. And um, that's fine if you've got a bit of programming experience under your belt already. But uh, if if you're new or if a language really follows a different paradigm than you've been using so far, it can just be overwhelming. So um, I, over the years, have just developed this knack for breaking complex tomp topics down into more manageable chunks. And uh, that's what I do in the book. And that's what I'm trying to bring to my treehouse teaching as well. I think that makes a ton of sense. I was listening to uh, Reuven Lerner, I think, on, on one of these podcasts. And he said something to the effect of, of when he's teaching, because he, uh, he does training. Uh, when he's teaching, more isn't necessarily better. Some people go in and they want to teach like everything they know in a week. Not realizing that uh, it's not necessarily better to try to teach people a ton of stuff. It's probably better to, to cover a small number of things, but make sure they, they really stick. And it sounds like that's kind of the approach that you take. Absolutely. That was uh, I actually got to consult with uh, Burt Bates, one of the series founders and co-author of Head First Java, when we were starting this up. And that was one of the things he uh, tried to drill into me was uh, to put your topics on trial. Is this really necessary right now? Uh, is it relevant to uh, the one topic that you're trying to currently teach? And uh, are they going to need to know it right when they're starting out? And if it's not, you should just exclude it from the book altogether. Yeah, I really liked your, um, I, I saw one of your notes about no, no, like, did you know sidebars, which I really appreciate because those are pretty much invariably just distracting, no matter if it's a programming book or a business book or, or whatever. Um, 
yeah, like you said, if it's not if it's not necessary and super relevant to the thing that's being taught right now, just just leave that out. Yep, absolutely. You can't teach the whole language at once and expect the current topic to really stick. Yes. And the did you knows are always just gee whiz stuff, right? It's not it's not actually relevant to anything you're learning. It's just oh, here's some trivia so I can sound smart. Right. And I won't claim that there are no sidebars in the book. There were a few things that were relevant to the current topic that kind of, you know, elaborated on it a little bit. So there's a sidebar or two, but it's not totally random facts. So here's a question. Um, Who exactly is Headfirst Ruby good for? Like, is it is it only good for somebody who's completely unfamiliar with Ruby or like, for someone who is it has been using it for a while or has been using Rails so far um, for a little while, is that something that like is good for me to go learn something new from? I would say that if you even if you've been using Rails for a while, if you're not really comfortable with your grasp of the core Ruby language, like say you're wondering why this bit of syntax is like it is. Um, Headfirst Ruby is still a really good resource for you uh, if you don't understand why keyword arguments work the way they do, for example. The chapter on hashes is going to be fantastic for you. Um, Yeah, just um, we tried to expand it out to the broadest audience we could, but the uh, original target is definitely somebody who has used a programming language before, maybe not completely mastered it, but they know what a variable is, what a conditional is, that is if statements and things like that. Um, and then they're trying to move to Ruby and we try and really expand on the topics that will seem unusual to somebody who's only programmed in say Java or something mm-hmm. like that. We put a few hooks in there for complete beginners. We do briefly explain what a variable is, but that's that's the key target is somebody who um, has done a little programming and wants to really master programming through Ruby. Yeah, that makes that sense. Actually, um, that's actually what I uh, rated the book. I called it. It's a great book for what I call an advanced novice. A novice, um, saying someone that has experience in programming, I'm particularly in Ruby, or at least I finish another beginning Ruby book and using this as a skill reinforcement tool. Uh, I was like, it's a great book if you just read, like, learn Ruby the hard way, but may not be like the right book for you if you've, you know, mastered finishing, if you finish programming Ruby. And uh, I actually I recommended it to several, like, boot campers, as well as one of my friends who's going to, co- uh, who's going to college. Uh, for CS, and so because I feel like that would be would be a great book for those uh, for people in those community, but a couple boot camp grads um, as well. So, yep, boot campers were a core audience I had in mind while writing the book. I don't know how thoroughly it's reached that market, but uh, definitely we were trying to target them. Yeah, well, that was the that's a good market for it. I uh, like so when I read it. It was, uh, when I read it, did the exercise, this was like, it, it's a great reinforcement tool because one of the things that I always hear from boot campers is that they, uh, the programs, they go by, they put in so much information that sometimes they want to slow down and get into a little more in depth. And that's what you, you get a little more, um, the book is more in depth with some of the basics, some of the core, uh, Ruby, um, beginning Ruby, uh, syntax and structures, which I really enjoyed. So one thing that I've noticed, though, is I've, because um, I've tried writing books, and inevitably everything connects to everything else. And so I start talking about one topic, and then it's, oh, but it would be really helpful if you understood this other topic. So 
you know, you're, you're getting into numbers and then you get into arrays and then you get into some of the uh, functional programming stuff that, you know, the, the collection, I forget what they call them, collection methods that like inject and collect and map and all that stuff. Um, you know, and so pretty soon I'm like, oh, well, it'd be really handy to know this, but then I realized, well, I haven't given you enough information to really understand it when I teach it. So how, how do you deal with some of these things? Like when I'm teaching Rails, it's like, well, it'd be really handy for you to know Rake, but at the same time, you know, in order for you to understand Rake, you have to understand how to pull some of this other stuff in. I have a magic secret for determining how you're going to teach this kind of stuff. And it's to rewrite everything you're doing from scratch over and over. It's quick, it's simple, it only takes a couple of years. Oh, is that it? Yeah. It really is a balancing act. And um, I definitely have found that if you want to achieve quality work that maximizes um, our, the ease of learning for the reader, you have to be willing to do rewrites. And uh, that there's just no workaround for it. In other words, I have to work to work? Freight. Afraid so. Afraid so. <laughs> it's definitely a balancing act. And now I can tell you my general strategy um, uh, for coming up with any particular chapter or anything like that is I try to come up with a really good concrete example. Uh, so it's basically a project uh, that people are going to be working on. So, for uh, for example, um, the, the number guessing game uh, that we start chapter one with, uh, I, uh, the program uh, says I've picked a random number between one and 100, you have 10 chances to guess it. Uh, well, that drove uh, teaching of conditionals uh, because you had to compare the user's guess to uh, the random number uh, that the program picked. Uh, it drove loops because they get to try 10 times um, I, and several other topics that I needed to teach for that chapter. Uh, for hashes, uh, we needed to uh, pick lines from a text file that contained a candidate's name and um, count the number of uh, votes that had occurred. Well, the ideal uh, solution for that problem is a hash because you can use the candidate's name as a hash key and then keep a tally of the number of times you've seen that vote as a hash value. So you walk them through that example and... Um, what I was doing in a lot of the chapters was I would show inefficient ways to, uh, to solve the problem, and then I'd show, for example, why a hash worked so much better. Uh, I would uh, um, uh, there was an example where you were creating a class that uh, created a list with comments in it, uh, so one comma two comma and three, um, and we showed uh, why unit testing was important because that uh, uh, prevented it from breaking. But basically, you just choose an example that you are sure is going to walk through the features of the programming language that you need to show. And um, that helps keep uh, your learner oriented uh, while you're going through the topic. Yeah, that makes sense. So I have a question for you, Jay. Um, how long did it take you to write this book? It's a pretty big book. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, how long does, does that kind of thing take? 
Yeah, it, it actually, we set out for 450 pages as a final target. I think we wound up going a little over 500. Uh, the, the project actually grew uh, as we were working on it. Um, and uh, it uh, also took a little longer than originally planned. Um, I, was, I was keeping track of time, uh, uh, time spent on it while working on the book. And um, it's a, uh, it's over 2,000 hours, probably on, in the area of 2,500 hours worth of work, work that's going oh, wow. into this. Yeah. So and is that just like spending nights and weekends on it? Or is that like, you know, similar to a, a full-time occupation doing that? How did you structure like when you worked on that book? Well, different – I've – heard different headfirst authors tackling it in different ways. Uh, some folks uh, try to take a sabbatical and work exclusively on the book. I wish I could have done that, but for me, it was nights and weekends because I still had a day job. Yeah, I think that's the way a lot of people probably do it. Jay, one of my questions is uh, how did you, where did you do the research for the first chapter to come to love the best practices and, you know, cognitive, cognitive uh, learning uh, advice that you gave the students. Some of the things I like, I realized they were really great ideas and really great advice. I'm already in my habits, so I can do all of them. I tried literally to do everything that your book said. I can't do the wait to learn at night because I wake up super early, and, and by the time I sit down at the end of the day, I'm like hyped, like really drained. It's a uh, I don't even want to read like a uh, Facebook post, much less a book. Um, so I'm an early morning guy, but I wanted to know, where did you get that, you know, those advice uh, from, like, you know, about, you know, making it the last thing you learn, uh, how, you know, the, how to learn, uh, you know, even the things that you also even recommend some things in regards to diet, like making sure you're like hydrated and things of that nature. So I just want to know, like, what are the uh, reference points and like these would really help you learn, um, and like using all the pictures and things of that nature where were those uh where was that data or that advice uh pulled from so you're talking about the uh intro the uh how to uh, get the best learning out of this book that actually is not mine that intro appears in most books in the head first series uh and i am pretty sure that that all got started with uh kathy sierra and bert bates back when they wrote uh head first java i don't know all the sources that they got that learning advice from uh, I know one book that they uh, that uh, Bert strongly encouraged me to pick up was uh, Efficiency in Learning by uh, Ruth Clark and uh, several other authors. Um, and uh, th that had some uh, general tips on how to structure learning materials uh, to maximize um, uh, how much sticks with the learner. Um, aside from that, I couldn't tell you all the sources they pulled everything from. But, uh, yeah, I, I wish I could uh, claim credit for that, but uh, that's definitely the series founders at work there. Darn it, you're, this is too much humility. You should have just said, well, I'm just a freaking genius. <laughs> I'm faking it the best I can. <laughs> All right, cool. Thank you. So I'm, I'm a little curious, uh, what, what kind of feedback have you gotten on the book? Is Do you get people that say, oh, I totally got hung up at this place, or... The way you explained this was really great, or does it just kind of go off into a black hole and you hear from people occasionally when you're at the conference and they go, oh, you're that guy? 
there hasn't been a whole lot of you're that guy. Um, I definitely am obsessively pouring over the reviews I get at Amazon. Uh, and I'm sitting at an average of like 4.5 or 4.8 stars there right now. Nice. So, yeah. So high score, achievement unlocked. So. <laughs> I'm going to go star it right now. Ah, thanks. It's a good book. I'm also curious as you're teaching at Treehouse, you know, where where do people get you know, hung up when they're learning Ruby? Well, so uh, the core Ruby content uh, was mostly taught by uh, Jason Cipher, uh, uh, teacher emeritus uh, at Treehouse. Uh, I right now am mostly focusing on a reboot of the Rails content. Um, and uh, I'm just about to release a course on Sinatra, too, because that's a good segue from Core Ruby into Rails. As far as where folks get hung up, um, installation of the programming environment. Uh, I, I hate to say, but right at the in their beginning steps is one of the most difficult aspects of getting started with programming. There's just so much that can go wrong. And we've, we've taken pains to try to provide guides that make it as easy as possible. But, um, you know, you, you still get DLL hell on, uh, some operating systems. Uh, there's all kinds of dependencies that can be missing. So, uh, very often, uh, people wind up uh, going to go into our forums um, uh, to seek out help when they get stuck, and we strive to answer them there uh, if they have uh, problems. Uh, of course, if somebody uh, doesn't think to go to the forums, uh, then we never know about it, and I don't actually know how many students are getting lost that way. I wish it was easier. Yeah, but didn't we? Yeah, have I found the same thing. And stuff around to make that easier, or does that not actually solve the problem? Well, so I forget the particular reasons that I didn't recommend Rails Installer uh, for uh, my recent Rails courses. Uh, maybe just the fact that it wasn't set up to work with Rails 5 at that point. I seem to recall there were a couple others as well. Um, we wound up recommending, uh, I actually don't remember. Uh, there, there's a post on the Treehouse blog, which has my uh, particular recommendations for getting set up with a Rails environment on Windows. And we also have separate posts uh, for OS X and Linux. Um, but basically, that was a result of, you know, researching all the available options and figuring out which was the path of least resistance. Well, yeah, I've, I've found the same exact thing. Like, um... I've gone to some Ruby meetups where it's like this meetup is specifically for, for newbies. So come and we'll teach you some stuff. And everybody's just like, Hey, how do I get like anything working on my computer? And it's like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that whole setup process. Uh, that can take like, I think it took me like a matter of days as opposed to like a matter of minutes or hours. It took me days to get set up the first time. Yep, sometimes you're lucky and everything just falls into place. But when you're a beginner and you don't know what any of these strange debug messages that are popping up in your terminal mean, uh, it can be a showstopper. Yeah. That's it. And I'm you don't even... <laughs> I, uh, we cheat at our nonprofit when it comes to that setup. We use Cloud9, and they have a pre-setup uh, Rails environment workspace. Like, if you pick... Uh, if you pick a Rails workspace, then it'll already be preset, preset so there's no gem set. So when we're teaching them uh, how to do Ruby on Rails, we can actually move over 
uh, to other type of white. As they get proficient and get more comfortable, then we can teach them how to set it up locally on their machines. So yeah. And Treehouse uh, went to great pains to create an environment called Workspaces uh, for that same uh, reason. Um, for our core Ruby classes, we actually uh, rely on uh, uh, Workspaces so that folks don't have to set the Ruby environment up from scratch. We don't have it working with Rails at this point, unfortunately. So uh, folks still have to set that up from scratch on their own machines. We're going to try and fix that in the future, but uh, we're not there yet. I'll... Uh, I'll... So we're working on a similar project. I will definitely share with you the GitHub I found um, in regards to doing that. Like there's a GitHub uh, a repo about setting the editor up. So again, handles Rails three. I'm sure some of the factoring it can handle like four and five as well. But the current one focuses on Rails three and how to make workspace that actually can use it. I would be super curious to see that. Yeah. Roger that. But I just. I just wanted to make a quick comment to um, re relative to uh, to getting set up. If anybody listening to this is at the point where they're like they're just about to get started or they're in the process of of getting started with Ruby and Rails and, and just getting stuff working, one of the one of the problems I've seen with people getting started is that they don't know, like you said, Jay, like um, they get error messages and they don't know what those error messages mean. And the biggest problem I see is that people read these error messages and they try they try to figure out what it means. They try to like read it and understand it when what they really should do is don't even try to understand the error message. This is my opinion. Don't even try to understand it. Just copy and paste it directly into Google and see what you find on Stack Overflow because chances are somebody else has encountered that issue before you. Uh, so like rather than trying to figure out the solution, uh, just find somebody else's solution to that problem. It's surprising how many people uh, don't do that. Absolutely. Googling skills are absolutely vital. Uh, in fact, we actually uh, demonstrate uh, using a faux search engine um, uh, in the documentation chapter uh, just to get people used to the idea of searching for error messages and searching for documentation on how to use particular Ruby classes and libraries. All right, let's take a break and earn a little money for the show by talking about Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They put you in control, fill out an application, and then top employers apply to hire you. Throughout the process, your dedicated talent advocate will also have your back, providing unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. And Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And they help people find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So if you're open to relocation, you can let them know, and they'll work that in too. Finally, if you use our link, you can earn double the normal hiring bonus. The normal hiring bonus is 1000 bucks, and they give you 2000 instead. So go check them out at hired.com slash Ruby Rogues podcast. Yeah, I'm just I'm just remembering as we're talking about this. Isn't it crazy that there was a time when there was no stack overflow? And before that, I, I was even programming. And I think uh, you guys were too, probably before there was even a Google. How did we get anything done? Reference books. And you'd look in the index. 
And if you got an error, good freaking luck. All right. I'm a millennial. I was not around. Google was around when I started programming. So, like, don't put me in the same space all the other old guys. (laughs) All the other old guys. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more of an Alta Vista kind of person. (laughs) Well, and I used to work in one of those cubicle farms, and I would just stop to the – I was lucky enough to have some senior developers who were ready to mentor me, and uh, I would just stop to the cube next door and ask my question, uh, and they were okay with being interrupted, thank goodness. Uh, Nowadays, I work from home, so I don't have the cubicle next door. Thank goodness I have Google. Yeah, and actually, Jay, I was was reading your little uh, about uh, blurb in, in the book. And it said that before you were doing Ruby, you were doing Perl stuff. Is that right? That is right. And then you, you switched from Perl to Ruby. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious about that transition. First, like, how did you get into Perl and how long did you do it? And then, like, what prompted that switch? So Perl, uh, <laughs> Um, I had an unusual path up through my career. Um, I uh, was basically working at a data entry job uh, for something that totally should have been automated away by then, except that it was a small enough job that it wasn't worth investing the development hours uh, for a tool this small. Uh, And uh, it was basically just copying uh, descriptions uh, from one database to another. Uh, and I was like, this should totally be automated, but I don't have any tools for this. Um, what can I do? So I searched around. These were Windows desktops, and all I had available was Visual Basic for applications. Uh, so like uh, the the macro language that might come with Microsoft Word. And uh, I was actually using that for uh, manipulating text for a while. Uh, and a coworker in another department saw this, and it caused him pain, as it probably should have. Uh, and so he uh, lent me his copy of a program. Programming Perl and said, oh, yeah, you can totally install it on uh, one of these desktops Um, uh, because there was an easy installer available at the time. Uh, So I checked it out and I, you know, I had Hello World up and running in absolutely no time. And after a while, I was the programming Perl book had an excellent reference to all the libraries that Perl comes with. So there were network communication libraries, uh, and that had me talking from one database to another uh, in very short order. Uh, it's uh, Perl is a very concise language. It's very expressive, much like Ruby. Uh, and um, I wound up automating myself out of a job, uh, basically. Uh, so, so they uh, promoted me to, I think they called it, uh, automation analyst. Um, and so I wound up building and building on this uh, Perl program to, uh, to copy uh, stuff from one database to another. And what, uh, like what year and time was this? This was back. This was taking place between 2000 and 2003. Okay. Uh, and event or and this company I was with, uh, Java was their main language. It wasn't Perl. And uh, eventually, the 
enough people were relying on this program of mine that uh, they said, okay, we need to bring you into the uh, actual development department and you need to learn Java because we are not going to maintain this oddball program all the time. We can't get rid of it because we need it, but uh, this, this, you need to start working with the official company tools. And uh, so my official day job was Java for quite a while. But of course, uh, Perl was still my uh, preference on the side. Uh, but there was that whole uh, debacle with the transition from Perl 4 to Perl uh, or from Perl 5 to Perl 6, uh, where it just kept kept getting pushed out and pushed out. Of course, Perl 6 is available now, uh, but uh, that was about a decade too late for me. So I made the jump to Ruby instead, which I really consider Ruby to be very much a kindred spirit to Perl. Uh, it has its roots in the Unix command line. Uh, there's a surprising number of um, syntactic structure, structures uh, that are the same between the two languages. Not many people. Can you think talk. of any examples of those? I believe argv, for example, uh, the uh, array for getting command line ar arguments. I want to say that originally came from Perl. Um, a lot of the uh, usage for Ruby on the command line, where like where you can type Ruby-E to evaluate a snippet of code right there on the command line, that came from Perl. Uh, just many, many little details that still exist in Ruby today that got borrowed from the Perl language. Nice. Yeah, I remember that um, when I when I got into Ruby, the way that I came to it was that I had been doing PHP for a number of PHP for a number of years, and I didn't necessarily hate it. Um, but then on the side, I started doing Lisp, and I thought Lisp was really interesting. And the more Lisp stuff I did, the less I liked PHP. But back then, nobody was really doing web applications with Lisp. And so I wanted like a more practical tool. And that's what led me to um, to Ruby. And I think when I was reading about Ruby's origins, like um, I read that it had roots in, in Lisp and Perl also. Yep, absolutely. I haven't gotten to do a whole lot of uh, Lisp coding, but uh, I have heard, I, I want to say blocks uh, or a structure similar to it originally came from Lisp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I... Um, I thought the map function was really handy too. Like when I first found that, it just, it made so much sense. And it's like, why does this not exist in PHP? I believe it does now, but at that time it did not. Yep. Map is awesome. Most of the methods coming from enumerable are awesome. I have to tell you though, when I was first picking up Ruby, uh, I was learning from uh, programming Ruby, the pickaxe book. Uh, I encountered blocks and I was like, okay, Okay, I'm just going to flip to another chapter here because I don't get that at all. <laughs> and that is why I spend a whole lot of time, two chapters, on teaching blocks in Headfirst Ruby and um, uh, just break it down real into really small bites because uh, I know blocks were very intimidating for me when I first came to the language. I'd never seen anything like them, and I figured they might be for other folks too. That might be an interesting to talk, interesting thing to talk about, and it kind of brings up a um, something else that I wanted to ask about, which is um, okay. So when I first started learning Rails, um, I kind of learned Rails first, and then learned Ruby. Like obviously, Rails uses Ruby, so you have to know some Ruby in order to use Rails. Um, but I just like got started with Rails without worrying about teaching myself a ton of Ruby in depth first. And then I went back and learned more Ruby. 
Um, and I still don't have that depth of knowledge that I think I should. And what I wonder that you probably know a lot better than me is for somebody who started Rails and has never used like anything that's Ruby without Rails, is there anything that they might be neglecting or have missed somehow that they could or should be taking advantage of in Ruby that you wouldn't be exposed to just by using Ruby within Rails? I, hopefully that question makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I'm not the ideal person to ask about this because I uh, came at it the other way. I definitely worked very hard on the core Ruby language before uh, messing with Rails very much. But um, basically, if I had to guess, a lot of folks are going to be missing out on a lot of the capabilities of the core Ruby classes. So, for example, everything that Array and Hash, those classes inherit from the enumerable module, uh, methods like Map and uh, Find and all that good stuff. Um, uh, not, not the version of Find that uh, uh, Active Record provides, but uh, the ability to actually search within an array. Um, yeah, basically anything uh, relating to the core classes I find really gets glossed over during Rails tutorials. And there's so much power available there um, that I really think folks could benefit from learning to harness it. Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in on this too because, I mean, I came into it learning Rails and then I learned Ruby. And once I figured out how Ruby worked, then my Rails got a whole lot easier because it wasn't just do it this way. But it was, I started to understand why it's that way. And I think you alluded to that a bit there, Jay, when you were talking about, for example, the enumerable module. I mean, I just took it for granted that anything that was a collection had um, each and map and reduce and all that stuff on it. And I didn't really understand that until I got into mixing in modules or the class system and how that works and how inheritance works. and. Um, how we use multiple inheritance with the mixing in of modules and how we structure our classes and how we um, pull together just other things to compose as opposed to inherit different um, functions and features. And then just seeing, as you said, some of the core classes and how they're really designed in Ruby as opposed to just taking for granted that they do specific things. So for me, it was must, much less like what the core classes of Ruby is, are capable of as much as just why they're put together the way that they are and why that helps Rails be what it is and then how everything can kind of hang together so that I can organize my code and take advantage of the ways that Ruby functions in putting my functionality in place with the functionality of Rails and other systems that I pull in. Yep, absolutely. Rails and the default Rails project structure are very much a prod product of the Ruby environment that they're built on top of. And when you understand that Ruby environment, Rails becomes a lot less magical. And I mean that in a good way. Uh, you actually understand what's going on a lot better. Yeah, I think one thing that people could stand to understand a lot better that is Ruby but not Rails is just using plain old Ruby objects in your Rails projects. Um, I remember reading this, this Steve Klabnik blog post where he mentioned that it took him a long time and it took me a long time too to realize that not everything in in your app slash models folder 
has to inherit from active record. It can just be a plain old Ruby class. And if you understand that, then you can um, you can you can make your code. I think anyway, you can make your code a lot more organized if you do it that way. And it can benefit your testing a lot because if you have classes that are just plain old Ruby objects, those can be a lot faster to test than ones that that do a lot of the database interaction. Uh, but that's not something that I see in a lot of Rails apps that I that I come across. Absolutely, because the tutorials don't cover it. Yes, uh, that's actually something that we ran into in our experience. Actually, um, two things that we ran into is what you're referring to, that how there's a lot of things that just are very Ruby-esque that people don't tend to learn when you're dealing with just Rails. That's why um, one of my favorite books that I picked up when I was a uh, when I was learning was the Ruby Cookbook, and it just has a bunch of stuff in it that you wouldn't even think that Ruby could do on its own. Uh, but when it comes to what back to what uh, Jason was saying and what Jay just say, they don't they don't teach a lot of that. Uh, they don't teach that in the tutorials. It just leaves them out, and you're supposed to figure it out on your own. So I definitely. I'm, I'm definitely wanting it to do that, do that more. I guess, I guess I want like people, uh, I want more Ruby, yes, more Ruby based tutorials out there that could actually focus on the little nuances of Ruby code. And, uh, I was just wondering, uh, follow up, uh, what can we do, like, as a community to, um, do that? Because uh, to get that more, uh, focusing more on the core language and not just, learn enough Ruby so you can do Rails effectively. Um, my brain that's currently out there. Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know how I talked about how it was important to keep a laser focus on the topic at hand, uh, uh, that that's what I was trying to do in Headfirst Ruby. I, I really don't blame the Rails tutorials for not talking about core Ruby too much because they need to be laser focused on the Rails content. Um, as a community, what can we do? Um, I would say uh, to steer people towards thorough Ruby tutorials um, that teach, you know, the uh, Ruby standard library and uh, just more than the absolute basics uh, to give people a really solid foundation before they move on into Rails. Um, or if you're doing a tutorial that's aimed at uh, teaching people Rails first, uh, end it by saying, hey, uh, go or it would be valuable to you as a Rails developer to go back and learn core Ruby classes. Uh, pick up the pickaxe, but pick up headfirst Ruby uh, because we really didn't have room to teach you here everything that you need to know about core Ruby. And there is still more to learn and it can still make your code better. Hey, do you need a sanity check on your code? Make sure all the tests are passing. Make sure all the static assets compile. You know, all the normal things that you need to do to make sure that your application is ready for production. Then you need continuous integration. And I recommend SnapCI. SnapCI is a product put together by our friends at ThoughtWorks. And it works great to pull all of your information together about your application. Make sure it's ready for production. Let your team know if it fails. And overall, just make your life easier. So go check them out at SnapCI.com. One other thing I see in this, and I, I totally agree on the laser focus part of things, um, we're trying to get people to results so they get the payoff so that they'll stick around. 
And, uh, you know, and so that's hard if we're teaching them core Ruby concepts in the middle of a Rails tutorial. But I also agree also as we put solutions up on Stack Overflow and things like that, um, not just to give people the solution, create a plain old Ruby object that does X, Y, and Z in your Rails app, but also explain why. This doesn't need any of the active record stuff, and so we're just creating a plain old Ruby object, and we're inserting these couple of modules, and this is why it works, and, and here's a brief explanation of, of the class system in Ruby. Absolutely. I hate cargo culting, uh, which is the old term for that, borrowing a snippet of code without really understanding it. Uh, I... I um, it's a it's an obvious pattern for beginners to fall into, uh, so not really their fault, but uh, uh, they definitely need to be taught the importance of understanding that code that they're adding to their application. Okay, another question for you, Jay, just about the uh, the process of writing the book. Um, now that you've written it, and I realize that it came out relatively recently, but do you expect to have to like? periodically go back and, and refresh it and update it and stuff like that as the technology moves forward? Or is it, is it kind of evergreen stuff that you, for the most part, won't have to touch? That was the reason I wanted to write about a, a book about Core Ruby specifically, is that I'm expecting it to be fairly evergreen. Core Ruby, and this is one of the things I love about the language, changes nice and slowly. There's not a new framework coming out every couple of weeks that you have to learn. There aren't uh, Python 2 to Python 3, the transition there, uh, the statement to print a line to the terminal changed. It didn't work anymore. And so suddenly a whole bunch of uh, Stack Overflow answers didn't work properly anymore. That kind of stuff, kind of frustration is something that uh, the Ruby core team works very carefully to avoid. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, so literature out there about Ruby uh, definitely lasts a long time. Uh, and I didn't want to write a book that I was going to have to be updating every six months or whatever. I'm hoping that uh, this will be a useful resource exactly as it is for a long time to come. That's is great. That, and I'm and, I'm sorry, is that the reason that we all got into like Ruby and Ruby and Rails? So like I that was my main selling point was that I didn't want to deal with JavaScript, uh the JavaScript burnout. Like I didn't want to spend every waking moment learning a new framework. Like I for JavaScript I know like three frameworks and I'm content with them. And because I use Ruby most of the time. So that makes like isn't that where we all like you know what? We love Ruby because it doesn't change uh, at, uh you know you don't wake up in the, the beginning of the morning and oh snap there's something new that i have to learn uh to stay relevant uh it's i, I don't know that was just me i loved it being the fact that it was as you guys said evergreen and very uh very few changes over the years it's very stable in it's, my opinion. it's funny that you say that because yesterday um i recorded a javascript jabber episode with the other panelists and with uh, Sasha Grief, who put together stateofjs.com. And it's this big, massive survey that, uh, you know, like 90,000 people took or something. And uh, it talks about the state of JavaScript in the community now. And the results came out like a month ago. And what's really interesting is that, yeah, people basically said, A, that JavaScript is moving in the right direction, but they also said that it is, it, that the rate of change is way too fast. Like overwhelmingly, like 80% of people said that the rate of change is too fast. Oh yeah, I get that from our troops. They're like uh, JavaScript. They're they're like they would prefer to look for Rails positions than JavaScript positions because they're like uh, it, it changed. Like every time that they're 
trying to learn something, something new comes out. And like, there's so much stuff out there. I was like, I know, right? Because it's really hard to get a base comfort level of starting to actually know what you're doing. And that's why I, I personally like love Ruby. So I, I will say, though, that I remember back in like 2006, 2007, 2008, um, like Ruby, the language wasn't changing a ton. I mean, we moved from 1.8 to 1.9, which was a little bit of change because or a little bit of things you had to learn that were different between the two. But for the most part, it was pretty stable. Uh, however, there was a lot of action just out there and people creating gems that did all kinds of different things. And, you know, there was a lot of angst over which authentication library do I use in Rails and which whatever else library do I use in Rails and should I use Mongoid or Active Record or something else. And, you know, I think a lot of that is really settled now. And so we're benefiting from the community having gone through this explosive growth. And at this point, it's something that is, at least in the community as well as in the language, very stable and very well understood. And even though there are still new things coming out in the Ruby community, it's not at this crazy frantic pace that we had before. And I don't think it ever got as, as fast and as crazy as the JavaScript community is now. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I appreciate that, that the Ruby and Rails stuff doesn't change at the crazy pace that the JavaScript stuff does. But I think, um, I think our choice of using Ruby and Rails, like, predates a lot of that stuff. Because yeah. um, this is only in the last, you know, last few years that we've had these really robust front-end frameworks like Angular and React and stuff like that. I remember, I think it was like 2012 or so when I started getting into that stuff semi-seriously. Um, and I remember that I was evaluating like Backbone versus, I don't remember what, but like Backbone was one of the most sophisticated things out there at the time that I was aware of at least. And obviously things are a lot different now. Well, remember, I'm working on deck once again. Give it up for the young people on the room. So I started coding in 2011, and that was when like this stuff started really kicking off. Was about you know all the JavaScript framework, like how Node just exploded, and then everybody was talking about Node all the time. And I was making that life decision of whether I was going to go PHP, Ruby, or JavaScript. And I just I was like, you know what? Well, around 2012, 2013, I went. I, think I'm just going to really focus on PHP and Ruby and learn JavaScript to the point like where I get comfortable with it, but not make it to like, oh, this is going to be where I'm bread and butter at. The funny thing is, because of Ruby and Ruby on Rails, I've learned more about JavaScript. If I honestly decided to sit down and uh, learn JavaScript, I wouldn't have learned. So I, if it wasn't for Ruby on Rails, I would have never learned React, Angular, or Ember. I think I would have just been like, nah, I'm good. So, I would, like I said, I was around when I was coming up and learning code. That's you know, the, this JavaScript explosion started happening. I want to say that it seems like a lot of this explosive growth, or lack thereof, comes out of the language that everything is built on top of. So uh, Ruby is very much uh, like Python, batteries included. There's a whole ton of useful functionality on the core classes right out of the box. You don't have to write your own stuff. With JavaScript, there's so much that you do, and that means that you either write your own framework or you adopt one of the existing ones, and hey, which existing framework should I choose? I want to say that it's the language itself that is leading to that, helping lead to that explosive growth. 
There's definitely truth in that. The other thing is, is that JavaScript itself as a language is changing, where we're starting to see ECMAScript, the ECMAScript standard, ES 2015, 2016, 2017, start to really get adoption, and they're starting to implement some of those things in the browsers and stuff like that. And so people are trying to get a consistent experience, and a lot of the movement is around things like build tools and stuff like that in JavaScript. And that's, that's just an area that we really haven't had to deal with at all in Ruby. Yep, I'm glad we have Bundler. I'm glad that we have Ruby Gems. I'm glad that we have so much functionality ready to go out of the box. So there's no need to debate over which solution we'll use. Yeah, yeah, and the only the only real debate over which solution we'll use is: Do I want to run this on the Ruby VM or JRuby or Rubinius? And and luckily for us, the majority of stuff in all those cases just works. And so even that's not a major departure like ES. 2015 or TypeScript is from ES5, which is the current fully implemented JavaScript version in the browser. I was about to say that. It's like, uh, so uh, my first question was going to be like, okay, uh, tabs or spaces? Which one? Go. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. Um, I'm looking into the Go language uh, lately, and they have quite firmly decided tabs, period. They've got this Go format tool that's included with every Go distribution. And if you feed it a file, it'll reformat it for you according to the community standards. Basically, however Go format reformats your code, that is the standard. It'll replace all your spaces with tabs, period. There is no discussion. Wow. I think that's great because uh, I like it when I like it when somebody else makes those decisions for us because the alternative is to like have an internal debate with your development team. I like it as long as they're the right decisions. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, no, but like if, if you have a development team, like I've always been of the opinion that you should use somebody else's coding standards rather than come up with your own because some of that stuff is going to have to be arbitrary decisions and you can burn so much time just debating that stuff. And so it's it's better to take somebody else's and you might not agree with every choice they made, um, but at least since it's somebody else's, it's just not open for, for debate. Absolutely. My general philosophy is smarter people than me have looked at this and come to this decision. I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we use Airbnb style guide. Like We're like, you know what? They're doing pretty good. So we'll just go ahead and hop on and use their style guide. <laughs> well, and ultimately, for me, it's, okay, do I really need to take the time to make this decision? Like, it's not even down to, um, you know, have smarter people than me actually looked at this. It's, I don't have time to make this decision, so I'll gloss over it. Yeah, this, this looks close to what I want, and so I'll implement it, and then I will pick up the pieces and say, this piece isn't what I want, and then I'll switch it out once it becomes painful enough for me to actually want to spend time on. All right. Well, uh, before we get to picks, Jay, do you want to quickly tell people where they can follow you, buy your book, check out other stuff that you're doing? Absolutely. Uh, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Jay McGavern, all one word, J-A-Y-M-C-G-A-V as in Victor, R-E-N. It's a little bit funny spelling, so uh, hopefully we can link that from the uh, episode notes as well. Uh, and if you want to check out Head First Ruby uh, for yourself, uh, they're on Amazon. Just uh, go search for it. Awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and do picks. Jerome, do you want to start us off with picks? 
Yes, uh, Roger that. My first pick is Effective Ruby. Uh, 48, 48 specific ways to write better Ruby. I really um, I just picked this book up while I was on San Francisco uh, for Veterans Day week. And we, uh, from what I've been reading, it's just a, it's really good. It makes it a lot clearer. It's been one of my uh, things now, just trying to read every Ruby book out there to mostly to upset my wife, but to actually get better at the language too. Uh, another pick, uh, I would say the Ace Editor GitHub. For those of you who uh, are looking into doing like a cool project of like how to make a Rails app that actually has an inline text editor that you can actually, you know, implement code and then run it, I would definitely recommend you guys uh, looking up the Ace Editor uh, a project tutorial. So those are my two picks. Nice. Uh Jason, what are your picks? Okay, so my two picks are books as usual and non-programming related as usual. Um, the first one is this book called Titan, which is the uh, it's a biography of John D. Rockefeller. That book was super interesting. And what I found was even more interesting um, was actually John D. Rockefeller's dad was a really interesting character. Um, so that was an awesome book i listened to it on on audio and it was super great uh my other pick is, is i guess kind of a classic novel uh something wicked this way comes by ray bradbury uh, i thought that was a really awesome book i don't read a lot of i don't read a lot of fiction but that one was was really really great very cool i've got a few picks here um so the last week or two, I was in Nashville, and then I was in New York City. And um, while I was in Nashville, I wasn't actually in Nashville. Um, I was staying at a resort called Evans Mill, which is out by Smith, Smithville, Smithfield, something. Anyway, um, and I was out there for three days. It was just gorgeous out there. Beautiful, beautiful area. Um, I was out there for a retreat with my mastermind group. And so I'm going to pick Evans Mill just because... It was amazing. And then um, I am also going to pick, uh, while I was in New York City, um, I decided to book myself a couple extra days just in the city to see the city. And while I was there, I realized that um, after a while, everybody else went home because the conference was over. We were out there for Microsoft Connect. We were doing a bunch of podcast interviews for uh, JavaScript Jabber and iFreaks. And... Um, anyway, so it, it became a little bit tricky to get pictures taken because I either had to bug people who were out there on their vacations, which most people didn't mind, but at the same time, I, you know, I didn't want to bug people. And so I actually bought myself a selfie stick. <laughs> and I always thought that those things were kind of funny, but, but it, it was 10 bucks and I could get mostly the angle that I wanted. Um, I did think it was pretty funny while I was out there. There were other folks out there with selfie sticks. They were usually uh, teenage girls. And it was funny because the way they had their camera pointed, you could only see, like, the top, top half of their body, if that. You know, it was probably more like a headshot or something. But they would do a full-body pose and then take a picture of themselves from the neck up. And I just thought that was hilarious. But anyway, so um, I actually own a selfie stick. I don't know if that um, takes me down a notch or two in your eyes, folks. But anyway, um, kind of interesting. What was that? 
I'm judging you. Just let you know. Okay. <laughs> you might fit in with those teenage girls better, though. <laughs> I know. I, I need to cock my head to one side and, and like, put one, one foot up uh, on my calf and, you know, and, and strike a nice little pose there. Anyway. Uh, Please stop. I'm, I'm like, this is like, <laughs> Yep. Anyway, so those are my picks. Jay, what are your picks? Okay, so I love video games, and in honor of appearing on the Ruby Rogue, Rogue's show, I picked a roguelike game, one that imitates the old dungeon exploration game Rogue. This is the Shiren the Wanderer series, S-H-I-R-E-N. Uh, but uh, Rogue was just, you had to look at squiggles in a terminal and decipher what the heck they meant. Uh, Shiren is way more approachable than that. It's got cool graphics, uh, but more importantly, it's got really deep gameplay. Uh, it's chess-like in that it's turn-based. You have to carefully position all your characters in combat or you're going to risk losing the battle. Um, just very deep gameplay. Uh, it's a little bit, uh, many of the installments are a little bit older, but that means they're pretty cheap on Amazon. So there's versions available on the Nintendo DS, which is going to be compatible with your 3DS systems if you have to borrow them from your kids or whatever. Uh, there's a version out there for the Wii, which also runs on the Wii U, of course. And uh, there's a version that just came out for the PlayStation Vita. Uh, love those games. Super deep. Uh, definitely worth a look. Uh, second pick is a book. Uh, it's an older one. Uh, it's called The Humane Interface. It's by Jeff Raskin, uh, who was a core member of the original Mac Macintosh project. Uh, basically, it's all about making software interfaces that are possible for beginners to learn and second nature for experienced users. Uh, that is totally automatic. You don't have to think while you're uh, using the software designs that are in this book. Uh, you'll learn about uh, user interface sins that are way too common in modern software. And this book will teach you things like why search that wraps around to the start of a document, like in many web browsers, is evil, uh, for example. Uh, just a, a great book. It'll change the way you uh, look at computers. It'll make you very frustrated with a lot of their aspects, unfortunately. But it's a really good read, especially if you design user interfaces. And that's what I got. All righty. Well, thanks for coming, Jay. It was fun to talk and interesting to just dig into some of this stuff. My pleasure. It was great talking to everybody today. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we'll catch you all next week. Bye, guys. Thanks, folks. Bye, everyone. Bye.